at the signal, time will be out of joint. Hello and welcome to the second transmission of Weird Signal, a podcast where we tune into the strange occurrence of art and media of the last hundred years in pursuit of all things weird, eerie and hauntological. I'm Lucy and I'm here with Sean. Hello. And in this episode, our focus is going to be on that second category I just mentioned, that is the eerie. And for this, uh, we're actually going to be borrowing from the typology of Mark Fisher, um, who described the eerie and the weird as um, describing two particular psychological states, often brought about through art and literature, uh, that were frequently, and as far as he was concerned, incorrectly grouped together under the broader distinction of the uncanny. Uh, but which he, uh, through his work exploring them, sought to identify as two particular categories. Um, Sean, tell us about the eerie. Well, before we can talk about the eerie, we have to talk about the weird, Mm. naturally. The weird, for Fisher, um, is the situation where we encounter an overabundance of presence. So he relates the weird to the grotesque. Uh, It's the great teller of the weird is H.P. Lovecraft, of course. And Lovecraft's stories will often involve a moment where the character encounters an entity of some kind and will try to describe the entity and will just end up giving us an account, a almost like a, a an anatomical list of all of the different components, but they can't really describe how they all fit together and we'll always fall back on saying that the thing is indescribable ultimately. It's like this intense kind of uh, rigorous detail that he puts into it all serves to just underscore the the failure of description, the incomprehensibility uh, and the impossibility of describing something in these human terms. The eerie, on the other hand, doesn't focus on the sheer presence-ness of something. Rather, the eerie focuses on presence and absence as such. So when we encounter the eerie, it's when we encounter something that is there which ought not be there, or discover something isn't there which should be there, which is why the figure of the ghost occurs so much in eerie literature, because as we described at very great length in our first episode, <laughs> the ghost is the figure which both is which is there but ought not be there, which has no business being where it is right now. And um, Fisher, and he uses two, a couple of particular examples to underscore or to demonstrate his idea of the eerie. He talks about an eerie cry, um, and it's it's the sense that kind of a cry is something such as a bird is something natural, uh, but to describe it as being eerie implies it has uh, some greater presence or significance for the scene that it features in. But an inappropriate presence. Yes. So when we encounter an eerie cry, what sort of like the image that that description brings to my mind would be just like standing or in the countryside on a heath or upon a hill and hearing something that you ought that you shouldn't be hearing in a place like this. So the eeriness is twofold in that there's the arrival of this sound which shouldn't be there, but there's this further eeriness implied with the question of but from whence? Mm. Who or what is the speaker or the issuer of the cry? And it's not natural because there is a why to it. Why is this cry being heard? Um, It's implying that there is some kind of agency 
applied or being granted to things that have no agency because they're natural things. Yes, exactly. So um, time, for example, in a lot of eerie literature, and Fisher gives the example of sapphire and steel, which we probably should cover at some point. Absolutely. Um, Time in sapphire and steel is spoken of like an animal almost. It's a thing with volition that's trying to break in and interrupt the ordinary flow of things. Mm. And this is actually where he talks about uh, both M.R. James and Nigel Neal, who we discussed in the last episode, uh, when it comes to kind of the inexplicable and gratuitous presence of a, a sense of agency in things like stones, like in the landscape and the whole, in fact, the, the entire discipline of kind of landscapism and psychogeography has this and emphasis on the eerie about it it's things that shouldn't be because it's unnatural to them but at the same time has uh, demonstrates something we don't necessarily understand about nature in doing so and i think perhaps it's uh, important to emphasize all that there is of course intersection between weirdness and eeriness that there is there is something eerie to the weird because although the focus is on the overabundance of presence there's still the implication that it's a presence that ought not be mm. And that is why tonight we're going to be discussing Don't Look Now. Okay, so Don't Look Now was a 1973 film directed by Nicholas Rogue, adapted from a story by Daphne du Maurier and starring Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland. That's Daphne du Maurier of The Birds fame. The Birds and Rebecca and um, all the a, a surprisingly large number of Hitchcock adaptations. Mm. Um, they were pals, although not artistically. Strange <laughs> history there. So Don't Look Now follows the story of John and Laura Baxter following the tragic death of their daughter by drowning, which is depicted in the opening scene of the film. Now, some months later, they've travelled to Venice, uh, where John, who works as an architect, is involved in restoring a medieval church. And it's during this day that, at lunch one afternoon, Laura encounters two elderly sisters who have also travelled from England, uh, one of whom is blind, and whom uh, Laura attempts to help. And it's in this encounter that one of the women suddenly and inexplicably announces that the spirit of their daughter Christine has in fact not departed from the world and is with them at this very moment and is trying to speak to them. Because one of these sisters is a blind woman who is purporting to have second sight. I've seen her and she wants you to know that she's happy. I've seen your little girl sitting between you and your husband and she was laughing. And she seems to actually confirm this, or at least appear to confirm this, uh, by revealing a couple of very, very important details about the daughter, uh, including her name, and crucially, uh, a red coat which uh, the daughter is seen wearing at the moment of her death in the, in the opening of the film. And so, on returning, uh, Laura gives this, um, gives this news to John, uh, and appears elated by the information. And it seems like the grief of the last few months has fallen away from her. Um, John, however, is understandably sceptical of the older woman's claims, uh, and is concerned that Laura is in fact being exploited by these two women, or has been brainwashed in some way. 
An interesting contrast between the film and the source material is in the original short story, John considers the more, the more rational explanation being that, oh, the sisters clearly just read your mind telepathically rather than seeing the spirit of our dead daughter. That's a silly thing to believe. It's clearly telepathy. Mm, which is kind of interesting. Um, but so later on, uh, despite John's misgivings, uh, Laura goes on to attend a seance with these two women uh, to attempt to contact the daughter. Uh, but this time, the older woman's psychic abilities detect something else. And she tells Laura that her husband is in grave danger um, and may die if he stays in Venice. Um, but then Laura returns to John. And though the two are reconciled, he remains sceptical of this information. Um, but before that scene can really progress, uh, they're interrupted by a call from England uh, informing them that... Um, their other child, uh, their other child, a uh, a young boy who's then staying in boarding school while they're away, um, has been involved in an accident, and Laura um, immediately goes back to um, to uh, just to go and visit him and care for him, uh, boarding the first plane that morning. This is what they meant, John, about leaving Venice. They were right, you see. This this is it. This is what they meant. So after the phone call, John remains in Venice, where he uh, is in fact involved in a near fatal accident in the church, where he climbs on a platform attempting to inspect some part of the artwork, and it collapses from under him. Uh, and this would actually appear to confirm the predictions of the sisters, that he would um, be involved in some sort of accident or was in danger for his life and he narrowly omissed some sort of strange uh, twist of fate. But um, before he can really contemplate what this means uh, for himself and for Laura, um, he, sees, um, he sees a boat going past. Uh, he's uh, on the Vaporetto at the time, and standing at the prow is his wife, Laura, flanked by the two sisters. Um, and he immediately um, suspects foul play. Uh, he concludes that either she's been brainwashed or she's, um, she's lied to him and just gone straight to the sisters or some other strange thing has happened um, or that she's been kidnapped. Um, and it's this one he runs with because he then goes to the police uh, to um, say that his wife has been kidnapped and that uh, they need to find her. And then um, it's during this during the section, they, the police actually do successfully find and arrest the sisters after some difficulty. But shortly afterwards, John receives a phone call from his wife in England at the boarding school. Yes, having safely arrived and is now with their son. And obviously he's in some confusion and distress following this, so he goes to the police station to get the sisters yeah. uh, released, because he, as, as far as he knows, because it seems he's just had these poor two old ladies locked up for no good reason. And it is both profoundly embarrassing yes. <laughs> and upsetting. Uh, he walks them back, to, after, after a stern telling off by the police, um, he walks them back to their hotel, where the psychic sister, or apparently psychic sister, falls into what looks like a, a fit of some kind. Mm. And naturally, he excuses himself. But after he leaves, she starts shouting, no, don't let him leave, he's in such terrible danger. Mm. And um, as he's going back, because he had agreed to liaise with uh, Laura there, although they have some trouble meeting each other, um, but while he's, while he's leaving, he's actually distracted because he sees the vision of um, a young a child, possibly a young girl, in a, um, a red Macintosh, like the one um, worn by 
like the one worn by their daughter Christine when she died and which the um and which these sisters had spoken about. Uh so he goes to follow the daughter, possibly under the um possibly under the uh assumption that he's that the girl is somehow in danger because there's a serial killer around, or perhaps just to confirm his own sanity of what's going on. Um but it's at that point that, um, well, he follows her across the river, across a kind of pontoon of boats, and into this abandoned building, where suddenly um, the girl, what he thinks is the girl, turns around, and it is a dwarf. It is a dwarf brandishing a knife who promptly slashes him in the throat. And we realise that, no, th- this thing, this, well, this, this uh, person has been the serial killer all along. And that's when we realise... That the boat he saw his wife on is in fact a premonition of his own funeral cortege. Yes, and um, and that is the conclusion of Don't Look Now. So I think um, with any film set in Venice, it's very often the case that Venice itself becomes a kind of character in the film just because it has such an intense concentrated history and um, such a strange status it is in fact a floating city it's a city in the middle of a lake and is impassable except for bridges and waterways Mm. and just has this inherently unusual and 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 just inconvenient (laughs) psychic (laughs) space Um, but it also has a very very interesting kind of historical legacy in the popular imagination as in it's this extremely beautiful place um but also kind of so beautiful that it is in fact beguiling and dangerous in its beauty and a lot of um a lot of works that have been set in venice have very much focused on it as um as this wonderful place but as a place prone to uh, strangeness, to duplicity, and to crime uh, in a lot of cases. Uh, one of the earliest examples of this kind of genre of Venice literature is a story by Friedrich Schiller called The Ghost Seer, uh, which follows the story of a kind of young prince who's taken into Venice and uh, becomes kind of brainwashed or comes under the sway of a Jesuit conspiracy, <laughs> uh, an occult Jesuit conspiracy, Naturally. who are trying to convert him to Catholicism so he'll come back to Germany and, and restore the papacy there. <laughs> uh, and then we have things like uh, Death in Venice, which we're definitely going to cover at some point on this podcast, um, which is about kind of uh, someone from the kind of like the kind of Catholic south of Germany, but from a very rural kind of rural setting, very kind of genteel countryside setting coming down into Venice and just becoming so overwhelmed with the heady uh, strangeness of the place that he becomes he he in fact goes mad and dies um, <laughs> and um, but even before that we have things like uh, two of Shakespeare's stories uh, The Merchant of Venice a very significant one but also Othello again that's presented as this narrative of someone who's very kind of strict and heroic and has very simple honourable uh, ideas about themselves coming under the sway of the duplicitous Venetians, <laughs> um, and so it's it's this place that's it's, it's strange and it's dangerous. It feels that anything set in Venice has to emphasize the Venice-ness of Venice, mm. so to speak. It's one of those places where you can't escape the fact the fact that it is what it is if you were to set something there. It's not a neutral location. It brings with it all of this um, about, you know, 
about a thousand odd years of history, isn't yes. it? About Venice was its own independent state, virtually. It had this independence, but also this very kind of isolationist attitude that um, it, which is why it's in a lake, you know, which is why it's surrounded by water because it. It almost feels, be- in a way, it almost feels atavistic because of the the, the inherent inescapable Venice-ness of Venice mm. is an in, of this inward-looking ancient city-state that is well, quite literally sinking into the sands of time or the waters of time, the marshes of time. Yes, and that's something that comes up just very, very much uh, throughout the uh, throughout the film, Don't Look Now, and that's in fact what calls... Um, what calls John, uh, Donald Sutherland's character, to Venice because he's restoring a very much decaying medieval church. And I think there's something fascinating about this because it makes it, it almost seems as if, or at least how Venice is depicted, inevitably depicted, is that Venice is this embodiment of the inevitability of demise. What this suggests to me is that Venice is almost the most real city precisely because of this. The inevitability of its destruction and the inevitable eventual destruction of all earthly things is imminently and eminently present in Venice. It's not something that can be hidden. Like I said, the brand, the whole Venice brand is about to die. I'll have the mastic samples by this. The acidity in the air is breaking down all the adhesives. between about it. So it's almost as if death as such is closer here when you're in Venice. It's like time is bleeding through this thin point in existence and it bringing ghosts from the past and from the future. This is perhaps why it's so interesting that John and Nora go to Venice and it's here that they encounter the ghost of their daughter, not lovely comfy pastoral cottage where she actually died. They go to this thin space where past and future and present are in a kind of a tension with one another. John's job in Venice is restoring this old medieval church that is, you know, as with all the Venice, is falling apart, turning to dust. Mm. But why is he preserving it? Why is he expending this energy, this labour? To what end is he doing this? There's something curiously faithless about his devotion to this old church. He's approaching it as an object. It's something that is settled now. It's not a living site of worship as far as he's concerned. It's an archaeological curiosity almost that he is helping to restore. So it feels as if there's something perhaps almost hollow to what he's doing. Yes, and um, it's interesting actually how the role of religion comes into that because um, one of the things that struck me about the film is the fact that um, for a film that um, has has an overwhelming amount of religious imagery, one of the first things we see is this glorious uh, ch- uh, picture of a church. Um, and that's kind of, it's in these contexts that a lot of the themes kind of play out. But the re- actual religion in the story is strangely detached. Um, and I think this is one of the things I was um, thinking about in terms of the separation between the outside world and Venice, uh, in that um, John's relationship with the bishop is very much um, a kind of. I found very much a kind of classically Protestant Catholic one. 
Or actually more that he's he's a secular figure, uh, but the crucial thing being that he's an outsider in this situation. In the sense that um, John is here to perform a very, very functional role on behalf of the church, and so he's there taking care of the nuts and bolts of it, while the Catholic figures keep the faith themselves, uh, deal with the more theological questions. So his relationship with the priest that we see quite often is very much a business relationship. Yes, this isn't a sacred space to John, like we mm. said earlier, but to the bishop and to the priest, this is, no, this is a sacred space, mm. this is a sacred site. But for John, like, the, 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 the priest is uh, someone you go for dinner with. And what I found actually interesting is there's a kind of class dynamic that you see right from the outset, uh, which is that John has a lot more in common with the labourers he's working alongside on the church than he does with the bishop. Like, uh, the first scene you see him kind of... He's under the... He's literally kind of up to his knees in water getting... Um, uh, supervising some drilling, and he's communicating with the um, with the workmen doing the drilling on much more familiar and comfortable terms than um, than he he seems to with the bishop. Oh, yes, the, yeah, to the bishop with his um, lovely ermine jacket, mm. and uh, I really liked the bishop actually. I mean, yeah, yeah. Um, though, um, though interestingly, to sort of in the juxtaposition with John's very. Uh, businessman-like, forthright, practical relationship with the bishop when Laura meets the bishop. And am I right in thinking that she only meets him once? Um, I can't I think you... I think it's a couple of times, because I think she sees him again but when, at but, a later point. But yes, but when uh, she meets him, and this is after she's had this wonderful revelation from the mm. sisters, she grabs his hand and kisses his uh, ring, um, his um, um, episcopal ring. Um, we, uh, and the bishop is very impressed with this mm. and sort of assumes, oh, she must be a Catholic. And though <laughs> she isn't a Catholic, but she just felt that she feels so spiritually attuned at this moment that she just, that is almost a sort of like a, a spontaneous outpouring. Uh, that John is sort of like, Im is sort of visibly embarrassed and, and sort of perturbed by. Yeah, I mean, the thing I got from that is like, shit, that's probably what I'd do too. Like, the fact that, like, you, you see a proffered hand and it's like, oh, there's a ring there. Wasn't there something about a ring? Am I supposed to, <laughs> and, you know, I would just, I would probably just launch right in there as well and then, then be like, okay, what did I just do? I'm, sh I'm sure the, I have done Over that. next time I meet a bishop, I will be certain to, to go for the <laughs> ring, yes. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, let's go back to talking about the church itself, because I think there's something very interesting here, especially because... Um, with this broader theme that I want to discuss about death and mm. its inevitability and its imminence. Um, that Because when John nearly dies at church, it's very dumb how he nearly dies. Because they're discussing the tiny little tiles needed to repair an old mosaic. And he's looking at this thing, it's about the size of a thumbnail, and they're commenting on how good the colour is. But he says, well, I'm just going to go up to the top of the scaffolding to compare. So It's, it's a tiny, trivial thing. Yes, and the the whole... I mean, I, I suffer from vertigo. Oh, that sounds very grand, doesn't it? I just mean I'm scared of heights. And, well, he's clambering up all the rickety scaffolding. I, was, I think it was quite... It was a, very much a bottom-tightening scene, that. And he... All, just just to compare these tiles and very nearly falls to his death and, he's cl and sort of the scaffolding collapses underneath him so he's swinging, swinging by a rope mm. and uh, almost you know, very, very nearly um, killing himself doing this tiny 
tiny thing, this mm. tiny, virtually insignificant act, and it's it's an absurd way to almost die. And there's something what's so interesting about and what's about that is the way that he is so totally fixated upon this literal minutia, and to the extent that he is, it feels like he's almost completely blind to the grander meaning of this site. Mm. For him, the church is it's a Meccano set. It, it's it's important certainly, but as a historical site and not as a living place of worship. What I think is actually very interesting about that scene, or indeed about the entire film, is there is a very, very complex visual language um, going on with um, throughout the film. Uh, one of the things that's actually interesting to pick up about uh, Nicholas Rogue is the fact that um, for the first ten years of his career, most of the major films he was involved in were as a cinematographer. Uh, so he was... Um, very much involved with the purely the visuals in mm. support of the narrative. It uh, might sound redundant to say this, but it's a very visual film. Mm. It is. It's very. Um, uh, the word the word I saw on Wikipedia was impressionist, and it is. And it and yes, and it very very much. Mm. It's it's not concerned that concerned with linearity or anything like that. Actually, it's creating these feelings. Yes, yes. and the and the dialogue dialogue is very very. It's almost quite stark. There aren't kind of protracted uh, musings on what's happening. It's just very functional. In fact, there's there's some uh, there are ad libs uh, included in it when they um, when Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie went into one of the churches during filming. They were making small talk, ah. and uh, um, one of them I can't remember which one of them says to the other. One of them says. Uh, I don't particularly like this one, which is <laughs> include, and they just have a little sort of like a little back and forth, which Rogue includes because there's a very he said, well, I just thought that was better than anything that we had written because it was just very ordinary, and indeed all of the dialogue is very muted and ordinary, mm. just people are just talking about things really, that kind of because you're not listening, you're you're looking, you're watching, and you're mm. feeling you're feeling through your eyes to use to create a horrible image there. But one of the things this means for um, for Don't Look Now is the fact that any scene you look at, uh, you can you can see things encoded into it. And there's really people have made the similar comments about Stanley Kubrick's films in that you can't overinterpret anything. Uh, everything there, it's kind of, it's been put there for a purpose and it's all very deliberately placed. Um, and there's kind of lots of recurrences of themes. There's the colour red, which is very, you know, obviously very significant, uh, which we'll probably be talking about a little later. But that scene where he goes up to the church, or goes up to the top um, to look at the mosaic, uh, stuck out for me in that respect because it's a scene that's operating on a lot of different levels. Because uh, you have you have this kind of minor act that he's, as you say, he sees it like a Meccano act. It's a very just practical thing. Um, and all the dialogue leading up to it has been, um, oh yeah, this firm has, this firm has been working with my family for 200 years. But it's like, as you say, it's, it's like, it's a very practical thing to them. They're going up to look at the top of the church and to make a minor uh, stylist or a minor kind of color comparison. They're just uh, selecting a palette essentially. Mm. Um, and there's this disjunction between uh, the language they're using and the visuals of what's happening because he's ascending, you know, he's 
going up on a ladder into heaven to look at this astonishing heavenly scene, but his eyes are only on one tiny fragment of it. Can we remember what the uh, mosaic is of? Oh god, is it some angels? I think is it Christ? Is it Christ ruler of the universe? Well, it's a great. It's, um, it's a. It's, it's going to be something incredibly major that we're just going to forget. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's this weird thing. He's like a. F- he's almost like kind of the fool going up to heaven to um, and just not understanding where he is it and rem- just looking at the stairs or the tiles and and that seems to be almost like. Is he being punished for his failure to acknowledge the wonder that he's witnessing? Mm, it's um, almost remin- reminiscent in a strange reverse way of the story of uh, the philosopher Thales, who mm-hmm. famously was so busy contemplating the stars that he tripped over and fell down a well. Mm. But rather than being overcome with uh, the wonder of this uh, great sight above him, as Thales is to the extent that he's blind to what's going on at you know, the bottom of his feet, John is so fixated on this minuscule aspects of the grand design that he doesn't realise the power that he's putting himself in. Mm. This, for me, relates to Heidegger's concept of inauthenticity in a certain way. Uh, For Heidegger, inauthentic existence occurs when we deny what we most essentially are and when we deny where we are. The situation that we find ourselves in for Heidegger is that we are mortal things with the ability to make decisions about our relationship to the world, but there's still, but underneath the overwhelming, inescapable truth of our inevitable death. Mm. Uh, John, however, with his obsession over these minuscule details, and the implication throughout the film is that his focus on his work is his way of dealing with the death of their daughter. Mm. And he says explicitly that, um, in, the, in the novel, in the book at least, that his hope is that by taking Christine, to, not taking uh, Christine, taking Laura rather to Venice, is going to distract her from the death of their daughter. So almost as if so that way he doesn't have to deal with it and he doesn't have to deal with his wife's grief and by extension his own grief. By throwing himself into this um, task, he's carving out a little section of the world uh, with which he can occupy himself with entirely. He's creating a deliberate and self-imposed ignorance of the situation that he's in. That situ- the situation being he's going to die and Venice is going to drown. Mm. That is why, I'm, this, to go back to what I we was saying earlier, this is why it's so important this film is set in Venice, because Venice is death! It's death itself. It's death and dying and decay. Christine, his daughter, drowned. And Venice is drowning. It's actually one of the differences between the uh, book and the film is that um, the death of Christine isn't depicted in the story. It's just mentioned that she died of meningitis. Um, But it's so important that it's the same kind of death around them here. It's this omnipresence to death in Venice, um, uh, it's only ever, death is only ever just, just, just out of sight. Uh, Venice is a city on the very edge of life, where time has broken down almost. Mm. Past and future and present are intersecting. Time is out of joint here. Yes, yeah. yes we said it. <laughs> yes, uh, at, this, at this insurmountable point, uh, at, this, at this point in our life when we reach the insurmountable boundary of our death, time is starting to stutter and break down. 
And that's again something that comes back to uh, Nicholas Rogue's um, adaptation uh, in that one of the two of the, the two of the key things that make it very distinctive is again picking up his visual language. One of the things he emphasizes a great deal is uh, reflectiveness. Uh, so there's the kind of the plot reflecting. So Laura die, um, Christine dies in water. Uh, Venice is dying in water, and then he, then the, but then that's almost like a false one because he sees someone he thinks is Laura who's drowned briefly, um, but it turns out it's actually not. But then that's always the implication that he's going to die at least near water. Um, but at the same time, yes, time is something is very much broken up throughout the film. We have um, we have constant flashbacks to earlier parts and scenes where. Uh, time seems to have almost been laid on top of itself. There's the uh, very famous and controversial um, sex scene, of course, yes. where cut in with uh, what was for the time, and I think still is actually, a very graphic sex scene, which mm. uh, was rumoured for ver- from years afterwards to have actually been unsimulated. I heard about uh, that. If Donald Sutherland denies that to this day, <laughs> to I this, should emphasise. To this very day he denies yes. this. Um, but this... Um, this erotic scene is intercut with them afterwards getting dressed ready to go out in a very very jarring way it's like returning to kind of like the 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 mundanity of normal life um but it's it's interesting because it shows kind of circularity but also progression um what's interesting as well is the fact that um this whole jutting between different uh time phases laying time on top of itself is um, the thing that we see in the sex scene and then also kind of mirrored at the end where all um, John's memories come kind of clashing together at the moment of his death. Um, that is in fact something that was a signature of Nicholas Rogue's directing style before he made Don't Look Now, which is very strange because he, um, it was, I'm not actually sure which other films that happened because I haven't seen them, but, um, but yeah, that's, it's almost kind of, um, it's almost like he was made to do this film because it's because uh, the role of time and inevitability and the um, singularity of time is so prevalent as a theme in this film uh, that it needed to have this very definite and very very identifiable codification in the visuals of the film. It's interesting that you should point out the that both the sex scene and the death scene have these moments where linear time completely breaks down because, and although this has become cliched, throughout history uh, artistic depictions of sex and death have always have often related the two together so that them um, suggesting that they have a commonality to them that's perhaps born out of their, of their intensity, the fact of their intensity mm. uh, and this is something that, yeah, and I think that's something that is reflected in the film, but it is these moments of te- uh, of intensity that kind of rupture the flow of time. Again, time becomes thin uh, and frayed at the edges when these uh, insurmountable, uh, intense moments of um, either sexual passion or mortality make themselves um, undeniably known. But one of the things I was thinking about in relation to, well, in, in terms of how this idea of time intersect with the theme of uh, Venice's decay uh, and the kind of the religious angle to it um, because one of the lines that's actually brought up quite early on in the script is that um, 
it's the priest. I'm, I'm mixing the priest and the bishop up quite a lot. I realise, but uh, the priest is telling John that um, the bishop is especially fond of this particular church, um, and he then says, in a sort of witty aside, it seems like God doesn't care for it that much. <laughs> um, and then, like John actually reflects this himself when he's he's relating to Laura, it's like, oh yeah, the um, the groundwork is completely ruined. The, the only thing holding it up is is Jesus Christ, our Lord, <laughs> and stuff. And it's this kind of ambiguity that creeps into the language, which brings up some interesting questions of how the materiality of the church and the materiality of Venice itself plays into the theology of the people who inhabit it. And I think the best model we have for interpreting this is the one that St. Augustine wrote about in the Civitate Dei, the idea that there is a heavenly city and an earthly city, and that there um, that one existed outside of time and the other is temporal uh, because time is, in classical philosophy, associated with matter. Uh, but the more spiritual aspects of humanity on Earth are able to transcend that. And this comes up in a lot of medieval and early modern devotional art where it's presented as a kind of analogous reflection. And so the, uh, the heavenly city is this idyllic plain, uh, which is very often depicted as, as kind of this wonderful classical architecture. But then on the ground, we see this same wonderful classical architecture, which is soaring and heavenly and ethereal, but it is, it's going gunky at the waterline. <laughs> um, again, and, this is the, again, the inevitable decay of all earthly things, mm. which is something that, which is a very important part of Christian doctrine, which is found in the Gospels. Yes. I've heard this, that, I've heard an interesting sort of, um, point well a point i find interesting so interesting actually i actually wrote down the words theological aside in my notes yeah. dear listener is that though in contrast to an, ex to an extent here though there is a there's a decay to earthly things there is an importance to earthly actions in christianity in that although the actual things around us are liable to decay the things that we do have a note of eternity to them because we will one day all things will be called for account for their actions before mm. the throne of God. So there is a there's a strange tension there between the impermanence of the world but the eternity of the things that we do within the world. And that's how, that's reflected reflected in the Dharmic religions of the East as well, with the notion with the notion that karma can once karma from one life continues to act to act for many subsequent lives. Yeah. That there's um, that. Although there's in the impermanence of things, but the permanence of action. Thinking about the theme of decay and the various kind of implications it has in the film, uh, one line that particularly stands out comes up during a scene between John and the priest, um, where the priest is asking after Laura's well-being, um, and John says that um, he says a very, very distinctive line. He says that. Um, Yes, yeah, she says um, She says it's like a city in aspic, left over from a dinner party and all the guests are dead and gone. It frightens her, too many shadows. And of course, aspic is the thing that inevitably is left after a dinner party because... Particularly in the 70s, where <laughs> everything was suspended in aspic. Yes, horrible, horrible aspic mm. reminds us of the inevitability of... Just every, oh, just of everything. And Ugh. also, just a quick aside, uh, Nicholas Rogue's... Um, 
ever-present visual language, one of the first things we see is them sitting around and there's like food left on the table as kind of uh, desecrated remains of um, of some lamb, it looks like. Is the lamb suspended yeah. in aspic? I don't know, have they just had guests drowned or whether, is that left out from the night before because it's winter and it's the <laughs> 70s so everything's really cold? <laughs> Who knows? But I didn't see any aspic on the table. One thing that I've been uh, thinking about is the nature of the prophecies that the sisters um, actually are producing. In particular, because well, actually, one thing I think is very interesting is that although we've uh, they've seen the figure, the small figure in red with them, with uh, John and Laura, because of the circumstances of John's death, one thing that I've been thinking about and there isn't an answer to this is: Are they actually seeing Christine, or are they seeing the? Um, the premonition of John's death. Is mm. this their daughter or is this um, horrible d- dwarf murder woman? Um, yeah, that's one of the things that you actually see from like right at the beginning. You've got um, John looking at the kind of transparent film sheets and he's looking at the picture of the stained glass window and then in one of the rows is a little red figure mm. and this just isn't picked up on. It's like is that the murderer? Is that him? Did he take this on a previous trip and capture the murderer at even at that early stage, or is he just going to a place? Has he just gone on a trip with his daughter and she's there and she's got in the picture and it's actually a nice memory? <laughs> There's that ambiguity there. Yes. Oh, but yes. It's oh, it's fantastic, isn't it? So what? What the question that is begged here is: Is John's death inevitable? Uh, and obviously, as we've been saying already. Death is itself is inevitable in itself, but is this particular death inevitable? And this is related to broader questions about the nature of prophecy. Is prophecy knowledge of the future, or is it a warning about a possible future? Or a uh, well, doesn't doesn't necessarily have to be a warning? Of course, it could also be a hope for a possible future. But the bishop um, is very uncomfortable about the prospect of prophecy. Which isn't to say he doubts in the prophecies that the Catholic Church believes in, but he's disturbed by by prophecy. He's not comfortable with the prospect. He he says he'd prefer not to believe in prophecy. Mm. And that's interesting, actually, in the context of this podcast, because uh, this is the second time in two episodes that we've had... um, strange, like, subtly unorthodox priests or religious figures becoming involved because, of course, you remember last time there is the, uh, the wonderful bishop, wonderful vicar talking about um, pollution and sin. Um, and then, like, like this, this bishop, he, um, he was very uncomfortable about the idea of exorcism and said, I know it's in the prayer book, but I don't like it. Just as <laughs> the bishop is now like, well, I know we're supposed to believe in prophecy, but something doesn't quite sit right with me. But what's interesting is what is the thing that doesn't sit right for him? And mm. it might just be as simple as the thing that probably freaks most people out about, from the, about the idea of prophecy, which is the prospect that the story of our life has been chiselled into stone already and we can't wipe away what's already been written. Mm. Now, the sisters themselves are, are very interesting because we normally associate second sight and seances with spiritualism and spiritualism and Christianity are distinct from one another and in tension with one another because of mutually incompatible beliefs about the nature of the afterlife. But the sisters, they think about these revelations they regard 
exactly as that. They are revelations in the theological Christian sense of the word. They are things that God has deigned to reveal to them. Mm. They don't call upon the spirits of the dead. Instead, God has chosen to grant the blind sister Heather with sight of the dead. Yes, that's Heather's the name I was trying to <laughs> They actually, um, they make an interesting point about this, that they see themselves as a kind of, they do acknowledge that they're a kind of fringe department of um, of religion in that they're, they're not, their ideas are not strictly in accordance with a lot of mainstream ideas. And they say, you know, they talk a lot about kind of mumbo jumbo and things. Yes, and they, were, they regard spiritualism as mumbo jumbo, just as John does, and yes. use that word. Yes. And they're very kind of, they're a lot more casual about it, I think, than the bishop is. And they, but they have that wonderful line about, um, I think this is a, a sacred thing. I don't think it's right for people like us to call upon it for our entertainment. Exactly. They um, this, like the distinction between what they're doing and what a spiritualist medium would do is that they aren't uh, to call upon the dead is to kind of exert a, a, an influence upon them but to receive a prophecy or a vision or a revelation from God is to surrender oneself mm. to the overwhelming experience of the revelation um, it's not necessarily something that you want to happen to you mm. it's an intrusion into your uh, into your life world to have this uh, to, to receive something and like more that. often than not it will kill you <laughs> indeed yes <laughs> so so this again this places us in a state of irreconcilable tensions is something that we can't answer the prophecies they're receiving are these is this knowledge or is this just a warning that they're receiving mm. about what's going to happen to John was there ever anything that he could do to escape from what's going to happen to him and I think this is like this strange functioning of fate and inevitability and prophecy is is interestingly underscored in the film in the sense that so many of the things that happen uh, appear to us as viewers as being so random or so strange or uh, it's like well as we were saying earlier the fact that the dwarf suddenly turning around and slashing at his neck with a knife when you think it's the daughter that seems to have come out of absolutely nowhere um it has this very kind of surprising twisting narrative that um that makes you feel that there is something going on but you you have absolutely no idea and you've no right to expect to have any idea um even if like even if in hindsight it all suddenly seems to make so much sense and it seems to be played out in the visuals that accompany it there's just some link that's missing so we've talked a lot about time in the context of don't look now but i think it's equally important to think about the idea of space uh, we touched on this a bit earlier with the idea of Venice as this isolated place uh, that's distinct and unusual. And I think that's something that is um, characterised a lot in the context of the film. Um, one thing, one scene in particular I was thinking um, was kind of, well, the scenes in their hotel room where this is presented as an extremely private space. Um, where, like, it's shown, like, they can, they can comfortably wander around nude. And... Um, and, but I think this kind of extends to this overarching thing about Venice, that it's this kind of microcosm of a place outside reality. It's like you were saying, if it's, um, 
if something, if some kind of weird prophecy is going to pl- be played out, it's not going to happen in uh, familiar, predictable rural England. It's going to happen in strange, prophetic uh, nightmarescape of decaying Venice. Um, but with its shadows, with its, and its shadows, aspic. its aspic. Um, but it is presented as a kind of a very unique space. And well, one of one of the things that's highlighted is the fact that it's. There's that scene where the scene where um, John actually first sees the dwarf. Um, he is lost. They're both lost, and they're trying to pick their way through these back alleys because they think they knew where a restaurant was, but now they can't find it. And it's suddenly where they wander off into this completely empty space, like eerily empty, because um, it's like right in the middle of the city, and then suddenly it's just deserted. That's where he sees the 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 murder. What we turn out turns out to be the murderer for the first time. I remember, we, I remember the two of us once when we were wandering about London of a Sunday had a very similar experience where we moved, we just walked down a few streets and suddenly moved ourselves out of busy, busy, busy London to completely deserted, enormous, mm. it was an enormous space as well. It was a great big empty street and it had shops and how and uh, modern houses and uh, wide roads. There was no one there. And it was just, it was a very warm day with a warm kind of dusty wind it was a very very eerie experience well that's sean is gentrification which is the material manifestation of the spectre of capital (gasps) dear god yes bringing all (laughs) bringing it all back to derrida of course (laughs) indeed but during that scene um they they eventually find their way back into the familiar streets and it's at that point in the script that john actually out of nowhere says don't worry i found the real world (laughs) <laughs> that's a very you know he's kind of being facetious but they have really stepped out of the real world into this dream landscape um of of prophetic venice this is something i think is very significant in the context of or just in in the whole film this idea of the, the microcosm of venice as this enclosed space um which i think is played out the scene where they find out that their son is has been involved in an accident and is ill um they they're alerted of this by a phone call but it's a phone call that's disrupted in many ways because one it comes at a very unexpected time and the people on either end of the phone don't know what time it is for the person they're speaking to and this is something they raise explicitly it's like oh what time is it for you so time is literally out of joint across this call and they can't quite distinguish what they're saying they know it's very important but it's there's interference and distortion as if it's kind of reality making some sort of incursion into somewhere it's not quite welcome and also they have to go through an operator they have to go through some spectral figure that we never see in order to achieve this so it's that kind of underscores venice you know they've stepped out of reality they're now in venice and and it's it's just very odd but the idea of the interior and the exterior is something that figures a lot, which I think is uh, f- plays a lot into a kind of cinematic level as well as a thematic level. And this is what I was thinking about with regard to the hotel room, um, because going back to the sex scene, that is an interesting one in that that's them kind of recovering in a lot of ways. It's them going back into this place that's private and secluded and kind of healing, because that's when they... Um, the grief is kind of overcome in a small, albeit fleeting way. But um, but it's interesting there because we have all the kind of like little signs of the outside world. We have a constant reminders of time um, being present there. 
But also, there is a newspaper on the bed being ignored and in fact being rolled over and scrunched about. And that's the outside world. That's the information coming in from the outside world being disregarded and slung to one side. And I think that just plays together wonderfully as this kind of focal point for a lot of the key themes coming together in the film. And just to say one final point about the Venetianness of Venice, there's a lot of, and also to return to what you identified as a kind of a tension between Protestant pastoral England and Catholic Italy. Is it all? Is it a lot of this does feel like it's reflecting certain almost uh, at this point ancestral anxieties of Protestant England? Hatfields for sort of decadent Catholic Europe, especially because you're sort of like the bishop aristocrat and the de- literal degeneration of the city feels as if it is sort of like plugging itself into that current of a feeling in a Protestant uh, England, mm. where where the the cat where there is something a little bit not just theologically disagreeable but just a bit off a bit dodgy about Catholicism precisely because it's so gaudy in a way uh, well I don't want to call it gaudy because I have a lot of fondness for Catholic imagery <laughs> myself but um, in fact um, the Catholic forms of worship and the Catholic ways of building are so put so much emphasis on the visual on the on imagery and iconography that from that from the Protestant perspective, there's something like there's something genuinely, literally decadent about it. That it's pagan is the real anxiety. This is a return of pagan religion, mm. um, masked as Christ, uh, masked as Christianity. That perhaps might be a little bit of a stretch, but I think any British depiction of Venice and especially anything and anything that deals with the Catholicism of Italy inevitably is going to have that element of anxiety but there's something a little bit suspect about all yes. this. And I think there is just that very distinct kind of just othering of Italians of this. Almost an orientalising of the Italian. And it's very interesting because um, one of the reasons why Italy or why Venice has this distinctive reputation as somewhere uh, foreign is because it was a massive trade hub uh, throughout the Middle Ages and early modern periods. It was the place with the highest concentration of people from all over the world in Europe, which is, you know, where we get Othello, because he's... Um, he's it, a Moor, yeah. He's a Moor, and it's the kind of place where you wouldn't expect to... Um, you would very well expect to see people from all over, all and over again, the world. The, the merchant of Venice, about yes. the Jewish population. Yes. And, and when I say sort of orientalise the Italian, obviously not suggesting that sort of the British there view of the Italian, the British view of the Italians is anyway comparable to terrible, terrible things we've done to you know, the, the rest of the world. Or indeed the Italians have done. Or indeed the Italians have done. But yeah, for such, and um, if I might dare to become a little bit political, these anxieties about the continental oh, are yes. very much alive and well in Britain today but uh, yes and that's yes certain of these prejudices certainly haven't gone away I think it's interesting as well this in this idea of othering the fact that they made a very distinct decision both to have a lot of dialogue in Italian but also not subtitle it or at least my version, I didn't. They they didn't have subtitles. Because my version didn't have it either. Because it's just uh, recognisable enough to not need them. It's words you can pick out, but it has this kind of slight uh, disjunction. It's like 
the bit that stands out especially for me is when um, they are um, pulling the body out of the river and um, he just looks around and goes corpo <laughs> it's like, holy shit, corpse! But it's like, oh, that's a that's a corpo. And actually, relate and uh, on a related note, the guy who played the police inspector Renato Scarpa did not speak English, and although his lines are, his lines are in English, and he simply learnt them by rote, which is why when he speaks, it sounds just very very peculiar, very weird and jarring. But he like, is entirely just appropriate reading the words from the paper and not the understanding have. It's beautiful. Yes. I want you to help me, Mr. Bastian. Try again. Try and find the pension. It will make me feel uh, we have your cooperation in a real way. I think any discussion of Don't Look Now would be incomplete if we didn't mention the music, uh, because it's something very, very distinctive and it plays into, plays into so much of what we've been talking about. Uh, it has an entirely original score by uh, Pino Donaggio, and it's it's got it's kind of replete with a lot of kind of almost quite cheesy seventies kind of here's the love theme, here is the kind of sinister things happening theme. But a couple of things that stuck out for me was um, well, the the opening scene actually that we need to talk about is um, something that is is quite legendary uh this scene of like there um john and laura are inside just doing very very minor uh casual things and then the children are playing outside and there's just this uh, this great kind of progression this barreling towards death that um seems to be happening just throughout everything depicted there's the broken glass there's talking about water there's the frozen pond or well, it's not frozen but it's wintry but during this scene, it's overdubbed with this this haunting piano score. Um, um, I can't remember where I heard this, but someone described it as being like someone who's a comp- comprehensive professional piano player just going through some sheet music uh, because it del- it sounds very deliberate and not particularly. It's fluent but not nuanced. It's, you know, it's very plodding. It's almost like a child having a musical recital. Um, And also, yeah, the childlikeness of it is haunting. Uh, the other piece of music that stands out, I can't actually now remember where in the film it comes. I think it might be right at the end when we see um, the funeral the funeral barge uh, with John, uh, which he realizes was actually him his his, his for his foreshadowing of his, his prophecy his own prophecy of his impending demise. Uh, but he he fails to acknowledge his own psychic capacities in that respect. Um, but there's this music that's. Um, I think almost definitely borrowing heavily from Antonio Vivaldi, um, another Italian who did the, who's famous for the um, the kind of Four Seasons suite, which um, anyone who's ever tried to dial into a call center will probably be familiar <laughs> with a tinny rendition thereof. Um, but that you know one of the distinction things about Vivaldi is that he's so bloody predictable. But that's deliberate because it's about the four seasons. It's about the circularity of the four seasons and the inevitability that spring will follow, summer will follow, winter will follow. Yeah. So to have this very definite homage to him in there is 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 brilliant. <laughs>
I think we've reserved re- uh, comment for some time, but I think it's pretty clear that we both think this film is absolutely brilliant. It's a fantastic film. I hadn't seen it until we decided to cover it. I've mm. been aware of it for a very long time, but I, for whatever reason, I, I didn't get around to watching it until I was at home with a cold and just <laughs> saw, like, well, why, I, I just might as well just upset myself with it, so I suppose, <laughs> and put it on and had a wonderful time. Yeah, and I think I, I think when I saw it, I, which was you know, recently, I'd seen it before a couple of years ago, um, but... At that time, when I first watched it, I was like, okay, this is a classic film. I'm a film student. I probably should watch this. Um, and so I was like, oh, yeah, that's good. I already knew that the dwarf thing was going to happen. And so I watched it slightly disinterestedly. But then coming back, I was like, oh, my God, this is brilliant on so many levels. Um a wonderful um, yeah. example of how uh, a good film of a twist is one where it doesn't matter if you know the twist. Yes, mm. yeah, absolutely. And speaking of twists, it like, um, should be noted that uh, unlike with Hitchcock's The Birds, uh, this adaptation of a De Maurier story was very well received by the author. Um, that um, she, yeah, she absolutely loved this. She thought this was perfect, and presumably didn't mind the changes. Do you think it can be called a twist ending? Because a twist ending is something that you can you can see it coming in retrospect. But this, it, it come it comes from the it's, it's the it's an intrusion of the absolute outside. It's the it's indeed eerie. Yes. It all ties back together, you see. I wish this was a deliberate moment. But uh, <laughs> but, but the arrival of something that has absolutely no business whatsoever being where it is. And suddenly, murder dwarf. Yeah, it's like, you know something's going to happen. It's going to be probably quite horrible because, oh my god, there's like, there's like movie mist and stuff and dark shadows and sinister passages and people it's yelling inexplicable street, things in Italian. Shrieking psychics and... Oh. And then suddenly he's dead. Then he's and dead. And he dies sort of like barely believing what's happening. The he, last he's as shocked as we are. The last line... Actually, probably the... more shocked, I should say. <laughs> the last line of the book is him just saying to himself, what a bloody stupid way to die. Mm. And that was the second transmission of Weird Signal. I hope that you've enjoyed our wander through the haunted, aspic-drenched streets of Venice. We will be back in a few weeks, a couple of weeks, with something similar, but once again, very different. We're going to try and make it every two weeks. We're going to try and make it every two weeks. Fingers crossed we all have deadlines and things. (laughs) Fingers crossed and hopefully um, no murder dwarfs will interrupt our plans. Thanks, Thank you for joining us. I've been Sean. I've been Lucy. Good night.